I forgive all living beings. May all living beings forgive me. All in this world are my friends. I have no enemies. Hamilton, Connecticut is a picture-perfect college town in New England. Everywhere are century-old white-on-white churches, one-of-a-kind homes with stone walkways, lovely parks, and graveyards to die for. There is an abundance of private schools, with names like Whitney and Folgers, as well as a club with lawn bowling and tennis courts called Le Boulevard. With a bustling main street of quaint shops, boozy restaurants, and packaged goods stores, Hamilton looks like a scene from a 1953 Fox movie made in Cinemascope. Surrounded by lush forests, idyllic lakes, and rolling hills of sweet grass, Hamilton was, in 1967, deemed the prettiest town in New England by the Saturday Evening Post. Every spring, Along with the mockingbirds and crows, Hamilton residents welcome the return of moonflowers, an indigenous creeping vine that sprouts delicate florets, which at night bloom and produce an anodyne fragrance claimed by some, even Indian princess Pocahontas, to be an aphrodisiac. As pretty as moonflowers are, they are not without their detractors. In 1692, 12 women were jailed when moonflowers were discovered growing at their respective properties. Regarded as evidence of occultism by the church, the women and their children were burned alive in a fiery pit of rattlesnakes, seasoned firewood, cedar kindling, and mirth. Today, Hamilton is home to Woolworth Liberal Arts College, which is home to some 900 students and a staff of 400. Built in 1880, tuition is £11,351, or $14,000 per semester, and does not include room and board, textbooks, or food. Those cost extra. During the spring, summer, and autumn, the evening air of Hamilton is redolent with the scent of moonflowers. The florets emit the sad odor of a strange woman's perfume and send local fireflies into a flurry of dazed excitement. Welcome to Hamilton, Connecticut. Fair Isle sweaters, King Charles Cavaliers, Land Rovers, tea, dainty watercress sandwiches, rugby scarves, primitive African masks, and closets filled with Burberry trench coats and barber wax jackets. 
Ewing Turner came from this world, a world of prosperity and Britishness, untouched for centuries. At 17, Ewing decided to attend Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts to study English literature. Although he claimed academic opportunity in his rationale for leaving England, the fact of the matter was his mother, since joining the Kingdom Hall, had become a totalizing tyrant and he wanted to be away from her. From BBC Radio News to the crossword puzzle in her magazines, to the mint she gathered weekly in her garden for her roast leg of lamb, Ewing's mother saw demons everywhere, and he grew to despise the woman she had become. Ewing told his friends he was leaving England because I never want to see another Land Rover again. Of course, his chums knew this was just a ploy. Everyone in the village knew what a bore Ewing's mum had become. She never shut up about God or Jehovah or the Holy Ghost, especially if she had been drinking. That summer, Ewing left England and arrived in Massachusetts, ready for whatever America could throw his way. After arriving at the B&B in Norton, Massachusetts, Ewing settled down in his room. But while unpacking his suitcase, an envelope fell out. Inside the envelope was a small crucifix. This could only be the work of his God-obsessed mother. He wanted to toss the crucifix in the trash, but put it away for later. Later would come too soon, when the Sandy Hook debacle occurred, leaving 26 people, including 20 children, dead. After Sandy Hook, Ewing wore the crucifix habitually. As for the Land Rovers, there were more Land Rovers in Massachusetts than in all of Great Britain put together. Attending Wheaton College, Ewing met a series of willing young companions and over the second Christmas holiday, settled for a bilingual model called Brooke Herringbone. Lovely as a willow tree, Brooke spoke Mandarin and English fluently. She was raised in Manhattan and her parents divorced when she was three months old. Her father, Chad, was an alcoholic banker who blew his brains out on Black Friday. Since her father's self-murder, Brooke always wore a crucifix. Brooke's mother, Lola, was a director at the Eastman Publishing Empire. It was said Lola Herringbone oversaw a song catalogue so vast it could circle the earth 25 times. Unlike her contemporaries in the entertainment racket, Lola Herringbone had not succumbed to drink or narcotics. She was, in fact, an avid cyclist. When Brooke was six, she was enrolled in a Mandarin language immersion program at a boarding school in Vermont. In no time at all, little Brooke was speaking, writing, reading, and thinking in Mandarin. From an early age, Brooke was smart as a whip. But her mama Lola warned her not to appear too smart 
men found smart women threatening. And women found smart women. Well, that's another story. Although Brooke rarely saw her father, she accepted his support and always sent him a handwritten thank you note. Chad Herringbone may have been a drunk, but he was not cheap, not in the least. When October came and her father killed himself, Brooke inherited his entire estate worth millions of dollars. Brooke's mama had her own money, so there was no bad blood or envy. Against the odds, Brooke and Ewing would eventually be married. The wedding was held in Scotland and conducted by an elder from the Kingdom Hall. The couple honeymooned on the Seine and returned to the United States, where Brooke was hired at the Asian Arts Alliance, and Ewing found a prestigious job at Woolworth College in Connecticut. Shortly after returning to the US, a home, well, a mansion really, at 17 Little Pitch Road was purchased. Although it was modest by local standards, the home was anything but. And so they settled in. Ewing, the boyish British college professor, and Brooke, his wife, the former model and Asian art expert. If you considered that such a coupling might have fallen out of an Edward Albee play, you wouldn't be off the mark. Ewing came home every weekday at 4.30pm on the nose. The day in early April would be no different. In an effort to maintain some kind of order, there were always landscapers at 17 Little Pitch Road, attending to the statues and the topiary, the fountains, trees, walkways, and designs made with closely clipped hedges and colored gravel. And of course, in this heavily fertilized and luscious environment, moonflowers flourished like weeds. As he opened the front door, Ewing noticed he wasn't wearing his crucifix. Not a good sign, Ewing. Anyone home? said Ewing. I'm in here, replied Brooke. Grabbing a stool, Ewing said, You're never gonna believe it. I just spent two hours screwing the daylights out of Una O'Neill. What the f***? said Brooke. It was incredible, said Ewing. What are you saying? asked Brooke. Una is my everything. I'm obsessed, said Ewing. How long has this been going on? asked Brooke. I don't know, said Ewing. A week? A month? I can't remember. I only know I've never been so happy. Oh my God, said Ewing. It's her. She wants to go on speakerphone. Do not put me on, replied Brooke. Hello, Ewing. It's me, Una. Is this a good time to talk? Is Brooke there? Hello, hello, Miss Turner. Or should I call you Brooke? It's Una O'Neill. I'm sure Ewing has told you about me by now. Like, I don't know what to say. I know that voice, Brooke interrupted. You're the kid from college. I'm sorry, Brooke. Una went on. But I'm crazy for Ewing. 
pouring himself a glass of wine. Ewing said, Brooke, I must have Una. And what about me? asked Brooke. You could live with us, said Una. That night, and for the next two days, Ewing and Brooke tried to salvage their marriage, but fought instead. Brooke tried everything. She threatened a lengthy and expensive divorce. She warned Ewing about the possible repercussions from the college administration. She tried to sabotage his confidence by pointing out the 15-year age difference between Una and he, a difference that thrust Ewing a full chapter and a half ahead of Una in a story of dubious achievement and outcome. But Ewing would have none of it. And in the end, after many tears and much yelling, Brooke backed down and began to pack up her possessions. On Friday morning, a moving van came and took away Brooke's things. When the van was gone, so were Brooke's clothes, jewelry, library of self-help books, manuals on Mandarin syntax, furniture, and her collection of woodwind instruments formerly owned by Bix Biederbeck. Just as Brooke stepped into her waiting car, Una O'Neill pulled up in an Escalade with her stuff. You must be Brooke, said Una, all perky. I have to go now, said Brooke, as she stepped into her car. Although the exchange was brief, Una and Brooke would never forget each other. Never. Next stop for Brooke, Lake Lorraine. Lake Lorraine was home to the vast estate of Brooke's girlfriend, Gail Walcott. Gail lost her wealthy husband in an earthquake in Rome in 2006 and has since refused to leave Italy. On the phone, Gail said to Brooke, Take the house on Lake Lorraine. It's all paid for. I'm never coming back to America. L'Aquila is my home and the Italians, my people. After the call, Brooke went upstairs and settled herself. Once unpacked, she went down to the boathouse. Thinking she might go out for a row, Brooke examined conditions. The wind was up, so the surface of Lake Lorraine was a kind of hopscotch affair. Brooke, who had been sculling since college, decided conditions were too rough and cancelled her outing. She looked at the sky and inhaled. What a sassy know-it-all bitch, thought Brooke. From behind the living room curtain, Ewing saw Brooke speed away and watched Una walk up the staircase to the front door. As Ewing opened the door, Una tossed him his missing crucifix and said, I think this is yours. He left it on the sink in the bathroom at the motel. 
looking at the crucifix he held, Ewing introspected. Had he grown so bored of marriage, of teaching, of sliding into middle age without demonstrating the least bit of resistance, he was willing to throw it all away for a barely legal girl, 15 years his junior. Who was Una O'Neill, after all? How did she end up in Hamilton, Connecticut, home of the mysterious Moonflowers? Anyone who knew Una knew there was no way she could pass a university entrance exam. No effing way. Aware of this, her mother paid $100,000 to a fixer on the East Coast to ensure Woolworth College received Una without question. On the Tuesday after Labor Day, Una arrived at the moonflower-covered campus of Woolworth College in Connecticut. As she stepped out of the car, she grabbed her bags, waved the driver goodbye, and lit a PRJ. After inhaling, she looked around the 19th century campus. There was an abundance of creepy-looking students, any one of whom could have been a mass shooter. Wearing flip-flops, health monitor wristbands, hoodies and soccer shorts, a lot of the boys looked like mini Mark Zuckerbergs. The girls were a hierarchy of third-wave feminists, radical lesbians, or aspiring Greta Thunbergs. Stoned, Una shook her head in disbelief. Although Woolworth College was the very essence of East Coast Ivy League snobbery, all Una could manage to say was, what a dump. Being in gender studies, Una did not attend Ewing's class. No, no, Una and Ewing met by chance at Che Guevara's, a popular coffee shop on campus. From their first meeting, Una and Ewing had a special energy. Some call it magic. But it wasn't long before their innocent discussions about Foucault and Derrida took a dangerous turn. Although Ewing was prepared to keep their torrid affair under wraps, Una insisted he come clean to his wife, Brooke, because it was, well, after all, like the 21st century and you know what I mean. By now, Ewing was under Una's spell and went along with every harebrained thing she said. So, just as fireflies are drawn to moonflowers, Ewing and Una were secretly meeting every day. To celebrate their new life, Ewing and Una did what all people in the early throngs of fatal attraction do. They ran naked through the house, knocked over lamps, had bubble baths, scared the cats, drank shots, smoked weed, listened to Coldplay, Ewing's idea, and carried on. Having twinned like sex-starved rabbits all day, Ewing passed out on the Chesterfield in the living room, and Una retreated to the library with her laptop to read about what else. 
herself. In October, on a whim, Una and schoolmate Sugar Palazzi, more about him later, created a Wikipedia page about Una. It read, Una O'Neill, 18, single, American, father Wilson O'Neill, TV writer, mother Julia Watkins, songwriter. Typical of Wikipedia biographies, Una's page was self-aggrandizing. It was all Una this and Una that. Una at the daytime Emmys, Una at Coachella, Una at Fashion Week, Una's eating disorder, Una's new boyfriend, Una the environmentalist, Una, Una, Una. But the real Una lived behind a crushed velvet curtain. Una was a study in learned helplessness. She was waif-like, quick to sing your praises and lean on you for financial aid and emotional support. But if she thought you were doing harm to people less fortunate, she was quick to label you a monster. Because she was homeschooled by an irregular alien, a Guatemalan tomboy named Fiesta Mars, who had a cash register where her heart should be, Una had the reading comprehension level of a child in grade five. If nothing else, Fiesta Mars demonstrated to Una the power of a lie, especially when spoken by a child. To make her way in the world, Una lived off the reputation of her name, O'Neill. Well-known in show business circles, the O'Neill mythos began with Una's great-grandfather, director, grifter, and Irish lout, Penna O'Neill. At 19 and fresh off the boat, the blue-eyed and generously endowed, six-foot, three-inch tall Penna O'Neill sweet-talked his way into directing a number of Buster Keaton and Mary Pickford movies to the delight of filmgoers everywhere. As simple as these 11-minute movies were, they set the table for what was to come. Currently, Penna O'Neill is seen as one of the great innovators in Hollywood's nascent days. But if the truth be known, Penna O'Neill was nothing but a Lothario who slept his way to the top. Women, men, Penna cared not. His goal, like that of his great-granddaughter, was money, power, and kicks. Una's father, however, continued in the family business. Una's father was Wilson O'Neill, a hack reality show TV writer best known for Hump Island, starring Tia Tequila, the barefoot bisexual bohemian. Una's mum was songwriter slash social justice snowflake Julie Watkins. Julie hit the motherload when she co-wrote 18 number one J-pop hits before anyone knew there was a fortune to be made in Japanese pop music. Then, 18 years ago, came Una. Growing up in Hidden Hills, California, made Una a hard-drinking, amoral, rapacious, aimless, hypocritical, drug-addled, passionate, dirty, loud, shallow, dangerous, flippant, holier-than-thou, sex-addicted, dishonest, self-absorbed, and utterly charismatic 
individual. Her moral foundations were nil, her decision tree, shaky at best. If you were a psychotherapist, you may say Una suffered from a personality disorder, but she was no different than hundreds of thousands of her contemporaries in North America. And if nothing else, there is safety in numbers. Cause it's just more lies. Cause I burned those shoes. I put them down the incinerator and burned them. Una was not pretty. Although, when swept away by her charm, no one realized it. Nor did they see the scars on her biceps, which were the result of hours alone in her room with a box cutter she had pinched from the groundskeepers. Una did one thing well. She always got what she wanted. Una could manipulate a person and then, seconds later, re-manipulate the same person with new and contradictory information to get quick results. Repetition of a simple message such as stop the gravy train or open for business was key to Una's success. She also spoke a kind of rhetoric that was easy to remember and yet appeared counterintuitive. She would say things like, we deserve it even though we don't, or that's a lie that could be true, or you'll never get caught. And if she was trying to initiate, her go-to was everyone's doing it. Be it drugs, expensive trips, clothes, jewelry or meals, without being extremely repulsive, Una always got what she wanted. It was fun to watch her have her way with people, but it was easy to be swept away by Una's mind games, so you had to be sure you weren't on the receiving end of whatever tune she was whistling, because if you weren't careful, you could find yourself in a ditch and the barrel of an AR-15 shoved down your throat. Despite everything, one day, Una O'Neill would become very successful. Cool? By June, Woolworth Liberal Arts College was closed for the summer. Ewing and Una had been living together for little over a month. Let's see, April, May, June, maybe two and a half months. Anyway, Una and Ewing spent the sunny days half-baked and half-naked by the pool. On rainy days, they watched Netflix and feasted on salad niçoise. And once a week, they kept their bodies as smooth as a baby lamb's ear. Ewing went to find Una at the pool. He kissed her. She was holding the latest Vanity Fair. Her lips moved like wrestling worms, which meant she was reading. Una was increasingly interested in the tech sector, social networks, and anything Silicon Valley. You, would you mind getting me another tea? Said Una, spinning the ice cube filled but empty glass. No, of course not, replied Ewing kissing his young fawn's soft neck. Have you heard of Mundy Lago? He writes tech for Vanity Fair. He's got a podcast too. It's pretty interesting, chimed Una as she looked down at the magazine in her hands. I've never heard of him, said Ewing, walking away. Is he like Kara Swisher? As he entered the enormous kitchen, Ewing was struck by a familiar scent. 
and by the strangest music. He followed the melody and the fragrance down the hall to the salon where sitting behind a piano in a pale blue shirt with charcoal tie was a creature so chiseled, so pale, with eyes so unattached. He looked like the Leyendecker illustration of the Arrow Collar Man from Collier's magazine circa 1920. Behind him hung the morbid painting of a crow. Whoever he was, he was the source of the music and the fragrance, which Ewing identified as St. John's Bay Rum, the cologne his father wore. The pale man stopped playing, looked up, and smiled faintly. Then, tilting his head like a curious Labrador retriever, Ewing said, That's unusual music. That's Paul Bowles, said the pianist. Don't let me disturb you. Keep playing, said Ewing, as he tiptoed out the door. Sitting down outside, Ewing shook the glass. From behind the Vanity Fair magazine, Una said, Did you meet Sugar? That's him playing the piano. I met him at school. His name's Sugar Palazzi. Your friend Sugar wears the same cologne as my father, said Ewing in response. Sugar is very Euro. Sometimes good things come along, but there's no future in them, said Una, closing the magazine. Born in the snow-capped mountains that surrounded the Roman suburb of L'Aquila, Sugar Palazzi was tough and pouty and soft and hard, good-looking and gloomy. One moment, he was a full-grown man. The next, a rottish adolescent, carelessly applying a sparkling red polish to his nails. Sugar Palazzi was a child of the equestrian class. But unlike his peers, the Capuchis, the Pettibones, and the Newberries, Sugar refused to participate in the schemes of his parents, who for the purposes of this story shall remain anonymous. After all, you may have done lines with them in Vale last winter. With a monthly trust and good taste, Sugar was generous to a fault. May I light that for you, he would say. Or can I top up your gin, he would add. It was all so nice, but there was always something else at play. It was the way Sugar Palazzi looked not at you, but through you. It made you think you wouldn't want to be buried in the same cemetery as he. Sugar Palazzi, a child prodigy, much to his parents' chagrin, loved the music of Bohemian Paul Bowles, who you may know as the author of The Sheltering Sky. Ewing was unaware Sugar Palazzi had moved into 17 Little Pitch Road a fortnight back and set up shop in the abandoned maids' quarters behind the kitchen. The way Sugar saw it, moving in with Ewing and Una was not only smart, it was brilliant. Now he could play the music he liked on a Beckstein Grand without his parents yelling, Stazito, Stazito, all the effing time. As the weeks rolled by, it was obvious.
obvious that with a few strokes on the piano keys, sugar could transform a dreary day, and there were a lot that summer, into a flight of fantasy. With so much natural talent, sugar's arrival into Ewing's home was much welcomed. Whether it was the effect of the moonflowers or not, Ewing did find himself staring at Sugar's silhouette, especially in the evenings, sometimes for a moment too long. For his part, Sugar enjoyed the attention. No matter how you buttered your bread, it is hard to imagine life without Sugar Palazzi. It is generous, if sometimes odd, gestures. First week of August, Ewing came home and found a note on the kitchen table. The note was from Una. She said, she said she'd fallen in love with a journalist called Mundy Largo. She said she was moving to California. She said she would not be around for the rest of the month. She said her new boyfriend's latest story had been optioned as a series for Netflix. Ewing was confused. How could this be? He was getting along so well with Una. How could she leave him? Just as he was about to lock himself in the bedroom to cry, it was Sugar. Guess what? I just got a text from Charlie Mendez. His family owns a fantastic compound in Montauk with a private beach. The house is empty. We're invited to spend Labor Day weekend in Montauk. You, me, and Una. Una's gone. She left, said Ewing. Una's too impulsive, said Sugar. But you knew that. Come to Montauk anyway. Sure, said Ewing. We'll go to Montauk for Labor Day. Then he closed the door and lay supine on the bed and whispered the word, Una. Una. Every summer, Brooke went to Fair Harbor for the end of August and the Labor Day weekend. Located between Dunwood and Lonelyville, Fair Harbor is known as the Barefoot Community. After a slice of pizza at Le Doc, Brooke went for a stroll. To her surprise, she ran into Una O'Neill, who was walking with an older man and not Ewing. Even though they had only met once, Una was not someone Brooke would ever forget. Brooke took a deep breath and acted as cool as a cucumber. Seeing Brooke, Una walked right up without hesitation. Una, barefoot and dressed in a muumuu, was walking with Vanity Fair writer Mundy Largo. Dressed in a khaki suit, Largo was 48 years old and had gained notoriety writing a book about the Freemasons. Mundy was the type of guy who wanted to connect, tried to connect, but did not connect. Until he met Una. Una made the requisite introductions. Brooke Herringbone, said Una. Una O'Neill, said Brooke. 
Brooke, meet my friend, Mundy Largo. Hello, Mundy. I read your book about the Freemasons, said Brooke. Thanks, said Mundy, before he stepped away to play with a ridgeback puppy that caught his eye. So, said Una, you're probably wondering what I'm doing here on Fire Island. I left Ewing. I'm too young to commit. And Mundy is too... Too old to say no, interrupted Brooke. Una looked at her fingernails, then muttered, You could say that. Anyhow, I'm moving to Menlo Park with Mundy. We leave next week. And I'm like, I'm sorry about Ewing. These things just happen. It's best not to cling. I gotta go. <laughs> then she ran down the beach to catch up with Mundy and the Ridgeback puppy. Because he went to the finest boarding schools, both here and abroad, Sugar Palazzi knew the children of the famous and the influential. His address book read like a copy of Town and Country magazine. Guests include a Giacomo, an Elliot, a Rocco, a Jake, and a Brooklyn, all of whom traveled with a pack of beautiful boys and girls from Europe. There were 500 bottles of Perrier Jouet and 500 bottles of Stoli in the various beverage bars located throughout the Frank Lloyd Wright-inspired compound, as well as hundreds of grams of substances with names too complicated to mention here. There were help-yourself PRJs in ornate oriental boxes throughout the estate. And of course, because clothing was optional, the weekend was a festival of flesh and swinging bits. Every night, Sugar staged brief concerts of Paul Bowles' strange 20th century music on the Mendez's grand piano. And yes, it was a faccioli. Thank you. But this four-day weekend was not the Bacchanalian blowout one would expect from the spoilt and uninhibited offspring of the rich and famous. If anything, their reserve was due, in part, to an absence of moonflowers in the Montauk region proper. Whatever carnal knowledge happened that weekend came as a result of nature's doing. Labor Day Monday, Sugar and Ewing packed up the car and headed back to Hamilton. On the drive, they discussed their plans for the fall and wondered if Una would ever return. On the outskirts of Hamilton, the scent of moonflowers tingled their nostrils and Sugar and Ewing felt closer than ever. As the two friends drove to the railway crossing on Route 7, Ewing turned to look at Sugar, and Sugar looked in Ewing's eyes. And then time stood still. 
following day, Sugar woke up in a hospital room. The last thing he remembered was driving down Route 7, near the train tracks. Then his mind went blank. You're lucky to be alive, said the nurse. After she opened the curtains, she tossed the local paper on Sugar's bed, saying, it's messed up, but you may as well know the truth. Sugar looked at the headline. Woolworth Professor Killed by Train. Below was a chilling photograph of a train and a crumpled car. Beneath the photograph it said, Professor Ewing Turner's remains indistinguishable from the crash debris. Sugar looked at the potted moonflower on the windowsill of his hospital room and blacked out. Trinity Episcopal Church was made of wood, painted white on white, and had a tall steeple with a single bell inside. Trinity Episcopal was a typical New England church. In the adjacent parking lot, beneath the overcast sky, an altar boy smoked and talked about the Patriots' future with a gentleman in a dark suit. Jerry, get in the car. We have to go to my sister's house to see the Sox game. After the quick, wordless service, the key participants each went his own way. Una and Mundy skirted out of the church first and hopped into a waiting car. Then Brooke, her mother and Gail jumped into a waiting Lincoln town car. On his way out, Sugar stopped by the door and sniffed the air, plucked the cigarette out of the altar boy's mouth, tossed it on the ground, and vanished. Mr. and Mrs. Turner, Ewing's parents, took an airport car to Kennedy and flew back to England. On their way to 17 Little Pitch Road, Brooke rolled down the window, said, I can still feel the heat of the sun despite the clouds. Her mother Lola looked at her hands and slowly said, when you talk like that, I wonder if you really are my daughter. 
eight hours after the service, Sugar Palazzi boarded a 17-hour flight to India, where he joined the Digambara sect of the Jainism religion. For the next year, Sugar walked the streets of Mumbai, begging for vegan food and water. A year later, he would return to his musical studies at Berkeley. For Una, the future was bright. Thanks to Mundi Largo's inside knowledge of how things really worked in Silicon Valley, Una was hired at First Here LLC, the venture capital firm. On the flight to California, Una loosened Mundi's tie and undid the top button of his shirt. Then she reached between his legs and undid his shoelaces. When she was upright, she nibbled playfully on the tip of her index finger, pressed her cute button nose up to the window of the plane, and whispered, God's been good to me. On the night of Ewing's memorial, the moonflowers of Hamilton unfurled, releasing their extraordinary ambrosia. Suddenly, thousands of fireflies appeared. As the bugs sipped the moonflower nectar, their bulbous abdomens shone. As bright as the sun on the first day of creation, But once they lit up, the fireflies exploded like popcorn in scalding oil. <laughs> 